The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Throughout this book, John has been recounting for us a series of signs. Not just miracles that are displays of power, but signs that are showing something, showing someone to us, showing us Jesus, displaying him in different ways for us. The first one we saw was back in chapter 2. There, in a very private, very small way, he changed wine, water into wine at a wedding. Ordinary water into really good wine, a lot of it. And a few people saw it, only a few. As John tells us in, in chapter 2, verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed. Very small, very private. The glory of God was shown, Christ's glory was shown, manifested, and a few people believed. First sign. And now here in chapter 11, we have the exact opposite extreme. A very public, very shocking, stunning, alarming sign with the same hoped-for end, the display of the glory of God so that people would believe. It's calling us, urging us to entrust ourselves to this Jesus who is seen in these signs. It's chapter 11. I'm going to move right to this text because it's a long one. I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a very detailed story. A lot in there. So I'm going to read all of chapter 11 and then move back through it to catch some of the details before moving on to some larger points. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. 
Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Now, when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit, greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him? But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been there four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of those standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. 
Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? They will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. John chapter 11. In the last several verses of that, we realize that we're coming right up on the time of the Passover when Jesus was crucified. So we're near the very end of his life. And this event is the final sign that John describes for us. And it's placed here in a very important position because how it summarizes so much of what he's been trying to show us about Jesus and because of how it foreshadows Jesus' eventual death and resurrection. It's very lengthy, obviously. It's very detailed. It starts out by introducing us to a particular family of adult siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And these folks are obviously very dear, personal, close friends of Jesus's. And next, next chapter, 12, will make clear to us that they probably have some money as they host a very large gathering. And the fact that a number of Jews came from Jerusalem to mourn with them indicates they were probably a rather well-known family, somewhat prominent. People knew of them. But what's their, afflicting them right here, their problem here in this chapter is a problem that strikes Rich and poor, well-known and little-known alike, fatal illness. That's what they're dealing with here. And they send word to Jesus about it, who several days journeyed to the north in John the Baptist's old area of ministry. We saw that at the end of chapter 10. They tell him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And so Jesus hurries south to Bethany immediately to see if he can help out. No, that's exactly what he doesn't do. Instead, he waits. He waits two days. Verse 4, he says, When he heard of the illness, he said, This illness does not lead to death. Meaning, ultimately, it's the ultimate end of it is not death. That might not have been clear at first. He's setting up a contrast here. The ultimate purpose is not that Lazarus would end up dead, but the ultimate purpose is that the glory of God may be seen. It may be seen in Jesus and that he may be glorified, worshipped. That's the ultimate purpose here. Jesus understands the purpose behind this illness. Just like he understood the purpose behind the man being born blind in chapter 9. God intends something in this situation. Lazarus is going to die. Jesus knows that. But there's a bigger, a broader intention going on here. That the glory of God would be seen and that Jesus would be seen and glorified. That's what he mentions. That's what he's bringing up in verse 4. And then he says, verse 5 and 6, to add some detail to it, John tells us, Jesus loved this family. Loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And follow this closely. There's a connection between verses 5 and 6. If you're reading the NAS or the ESV, it's translated very accurately. So, the original actually reads something like, verse 5, he loved these folks. Verse 6, therefore, when he heard of this, he stayed. There's a connection there, a little more on that later, but notice for right now that his love for them prompts his waiting. He loved them, therefore he waited two days. Two days, and then he goes. 
Then he heads south, and that causes a lot of consternation amongst his disciples because the last time they were down there, the Jews were eager to kill them. They realize that, so they don't want to go back. And they press Jesus on this, and Jesus reminds them, another sim- similar statement to chapter 9, he talks about how we need to work during the daytime because the night's going to come. He's referring probably to some urgency here on his mission. He's also perhaps commenting on while it's still day, he's not in danger. The night will come. The night's going to come, but before the sun sets, it's light. So I have work to do right up until the darkness. So let's go do it. Perhaps he's getting at that a little bit too. And he says, I need to go help Lazarus, who's fallen asleep. Well, they think he's physically asleep. Jesus clarifies, no, in fact, he's dead. And then verse 15, and for your sake, I'm glad, I rejoice that I wasn't there. I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you can believe. That's the second statement of this sort. Because he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he waited. He's glad for the disciples that he wasn't there. Jesus is up to something here. You need to kind of hang this on a hook. We're going to come back to this. But Jesus is deliberately avoiding and happy that he's not present out of love for the sake of the disciples. We're going to come back to that. That's interesting. Note that. Let's keep moving on. He travels to Bethany, and upon arriving there, he realizes that Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days now. Now, if you do the math, you realize that Jesus' delay did not actually lead to Lazarus' death. He waited two days, and when he gets there, he's been dead four days. So even if he left immediately, he still would have encountered Lazarus dead two days. So the delay did not actually cause his death, but yet it is significant. Here's why. When he gets there, he's dealing with a four-day-old corpse. That's important, because in that time, in some various circles, some superstition held that the soul of a person left the body but kind of hung around the body and might perhaps return into the body to be resuscitated if the right magic was done or something like that. But... Once the body began to decay, that didn't happen. The soul left, departed permanently. If he'd showed up at day two, the decay had not begun yet. So perhaps this is going to be magic or something. We don't know. But he shows up on day four. He waits two days so that he shows up on day four when they're sure that decomposition has begun. Notice Martha's comments, Lord, there's going to be a strong smell. It's day four. Everybody realizes that. And that's why Jesus waits two days, so that he shows up at a point when all other hope, any other hope apart from Jesus is gone. Lazarus is really dead. Dead, dead. Gone. And then Jesus arrives. That's why he waits. He arrives four days later. And now we meet the crowd of mourners who have come to console the family, and as well as we meet Mary and Martha themselves. Jesus stays away from the crowds, and well, Mary continues to do the socially appropriate thing. She, she is sitting Shiva, a seven-day period of hard mourning. She's seated in the midst of the people in her home mourning. She's doing what she's supposed to be doing, but Martha kind of sneaks out the back and goes to see Jesus. And she encounters him, and her conversation with him is one of the high points of the story. She trusts him, and she tells him so. She's really clear about that, but she also misunderstands him. She's talking on the physical level, and Jesus is trying to point her to the spiritual level. 
She says, God will give you anything you ask, but she scarcely understands what that means. She acknowledges the resurrection, but she doesn't really get the resurrection. Still, despite all that, in verse 27, she, she off of her lips, she speaks one of the most thorough affirmations of the whole book. Sometimes Martha gets kind of a bad reputation because of the story in Luke where Martha's doing the housework and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus like she's supposed to be. So Martha gets the bad rap. Martha knows some things about Jesus. She says what John is trying to communicate, what Jesus is trying to communicate. Lord, you are the Christ. They were debating this in chapter 10. Martha knows it. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the one who was sent. She gets that. She issues that kind of statement. And then she goes to get Mary. Mary comes, brings the crowd with her, as you see there. And this is obviously an emotionally charged situation. Many people weeping, sorrow. Mary collapses at Jesus' feet. She's there with him. As Jesus looks out at that, something about her weeping and the crowd's weeping moves him. Look in verse 33 for a moment just to get a picture of his attitude. The ESV says that he was deeply moved in his spirit. Here and then down again in verse 38. Deeply moved in spirit. That's a word you could translate agitated. It's a word that's used sometimes to describe how a horse snorts. It's not just sad, it's agitated. He's that and deeply sorrowed. And he weeps. This wouldn't be something where you'd look at him and say, Is Jesus crying? Maybe a little wet in his eyes. No, he's weeping. Everybody knows it. He's weeping, he's deeply sorrowed, and he's agitated. He's seeing people, he's face to face with sin and its consequence death and the tragedy that it reaps here on earth. He's seeing that in the eyes of people. He knows he's about to march off and defeat it, but he's seeing it, and he, being fully human, is engaged with the human condition, sorrowing, saddened, and angry a little bit too. And so he gets up angry again, agitated, bristling, and he goes to the tomb, tells him to move away the stone, prays out loud. Why does he pray out loud? Not to ask God for something, but to thank him for already answering a prayer previously asked. Look at that carefully. I thank you that you hear me. He doesn't ask him, will you raise Lazarus? So why does he pray out loud? So that, he says, everybody's standing around We'll look at this and we'll understand the relationship that Jesus and the Father have. We'll see Him depending on Him. And we'll realize that He is indeed the sent one. That He is the one come with authority. That's why He prays out loud, so that they may believe. That He commands the dead man, come out. And the dead man obeys Him. The dead and decaying obey Jesus and come back to life. We are way too familiar with this story. Way too familiar with this story. We've all heard this story. We all can recite all the details of it. Half the crowd probably fainted. Can you imagine? Try to imagine that. It would be shocking. I mean, I can't say that loudly enough. Shocking. 
You're looking at this hole, and the dead man walks out. What do you do with that? Well, many of them believed. And amazingly, some of them didn't. Amazingly, some of them didn't. They went off to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees say, this guy's doing so much stuff, if we don't put a stop to this, everybody's going to believe in him. <laughs> what? Did you hear what you just said? Yes, he's doing so much stuff. Yes, people might believe in him, but they're bent on stopping him. So they gather together a plan, they put a price on his head. It's going to succeed. It's amazing. Some believed, and some did not. What else could you do? Well, maybe rise from the dead yourself. He's going to do that too. That's the text for this morning. I would say it's a very long one. I skipped over some things here and there, and we're obviously pretty familiar with that already. I'm going to pull out two main points from this passage. One, the, probably the biggest, the central one, has to deal with the fact that Jesus gives life. He performs this sign, what we see in that. I'm going to deal with that first. That's the probably the biggest main point but behind it beneath it there's another point that it will profit us to look at as well i'm going to come to that secondly let's begin though by looking at jesus and the first main point in jesus the dead live in jesus the dead live in him alone dead men dead women dead boys dead girls the dead live and i mean that primarily spiritually in jesus the spiritually dead spiritually can find life that's the clear thrust of his conversation with martha in verses 20 to 27 it's what he's trying to illustrate in the physical raising he says to her in those verses your brother will rise again she says yes yes i know lord i know about the resurrection there's going to be a day when his body is going to come back to life i get that she's jewish She's not of the, of the party of the Sadducees who denied that. She accepts it, she understands it, she gets the resurrection. But she doesn't. Once again, Jesus is using the physical realm to point her to glorious spiritual truth. I am the resurrection and the life. I am in me. In me alone is life. True, abundant, rich, blessed, peace-filled, joyous, glorious life. That's what I am. That's what I give. Me. Me alone. I'm the one who raises people from dead to living. I resurrect them. I transfer them from one kingdom to another. Me. Martha. Saints. Friends. The real resurrection, the one that most matters, is not the one at the end of time. There is one there, for sure. There is one, one way or another. Every single person will rise up from the dead physically and stand before God. That will happen. Be sure of it. That's what Martha's thinking about, but that's not primarily what Jesus is focused on. He's speaking of something else that's just as cataclysmic, just as dramatic. But it's not tied to a date on a calendar, it's tied to a person. In Him is the resurrection. Not physically, but in relationship with Him. In being joined to Him is resurrection and life. Follow what he says in verses 25 and 26. I am, another one of those I am statements, 
taking the name of the Lord, I am this resurrection and life. Passing from death to life happens in me, and then he elaborates on that in two different ways. First he says, whoever believes in me, that's ongoing, consistent belief, trust, faith, whoever consistently, genuinely believes in me, though he dies physically, yet he will live. He'll live, he'll come to life. He'll experience resurrection. Remember, he's, he's surpassing what Martha's thinking about here. It means something a little more. It doesn't seem that he just means that if you believe, you will physically die and you will physically live again. Everybody, one way or another, goes through that process. That's not unique to believers. He's talking about something different. If you believe, you physically die and you come to life. You experience something new, vivid, a face-to-face meeting with and living with the one whom you've only previously seen through a glass dimly. Now it's stripped away face-to-face. The reign of God in your heart, alive, in living color now. There's no longer any struggle with, with, the, with sin, our, our nature here. The struggle to obey and walk after Him and to see Him, that's gone. And you live in a new and profound and deep and captivating way. Can you imagine that? No, you can't imagine that. But can you imagine that? Different than anything you know. That's why you can't imagine it. But different. Release. And entering into rest, joy, life. Though you physically die, you shall live. That's why Paul can say that to die is gain. He means gain, not just decent, okay. Gain. Because you gain Christ in this intimate new way. You have Him now, but you gain Him. That's the life from the other side of physical death. But is it only there? Is it limited to just there? No, that's what the next phrase gets at. Verse 26. And everyone who lives right now and believes in me, the living believer shall never die. Physically never die, live forever. No, Jesus doesn't mean that. Of course. What he means is that life starts now. It's different after you physically died, but that same type of thing begins now. For the one who lives right now and believes, he has, she has that life right now. And it's the type of life that is not stopped at death. Rather, it's enhanced by it, but it's the same sort of thing. We want to continue here. Right here, right now, you can also have this life. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this, friends? You must if you want to live. But before you answer that, go back to the beginning of verse 25 and note again that he says, I am the resurrection. He's not talking about facts. He's not presenting presenting some facts to you that that he's then asking, do you believe these facts? He's making this very personal. When he says, do you believe this, He's talking about, do you believe that this is me? That this happens in me? 
I am the resurrection. I am the life. I don't just give it. I am it. Maybe it's a little odd to think about, so try to think of, think of it like this. Suppose that you have here a very close family. A, a remarkably close family, and they all live in one little locale, one hometown or one part of a city. And the generations grow up there. And most of the, the family members, they marry in and they stay there and they start their own homes. So there's this family center, very close, very connected, very loving. But eventually... One of the kids, say maybe a son, let's say, one of the kids moves away. Maybe it's his job or a marriage that takes him away, and he moves away, long ways away, thousands of miles. Let's say he moves to Asia. Or if you're from Asia, maybe he moves to America. Moves far away. Now, he lives there for a number of years, and because he, he's still very close to family, he calls all the time, he writes frequently. When the, little one come, when the little ones start to come along, they make home movies and they send them back via mail and so that everybody can watch. They're staying connected as best they can, but back in the hometown, back in the, where the family is, mom and dad and grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters really miss this son. They miss his family and they miss the grandkids or the great-grandkids they've never met. They long for them. They miss them. And then one Christmas day, while they're all gathered together, unwrapping presents, the doorbell rings. Somebody saunters over the door, opens the door. Who's there? There he is with his wife and kid on each arm. Such joy and a party breaks out, celebration and tears and crying and laughter. And not a single person says, so, what'd you bring me for Christmas? Nobody even thinks that. Not in anybody's mind. They themselves are the gift. What else could they want? Grandma, for instance, is not saying, she's not even thinking, I'm so delighted that you traveled thousands of miles to see me and you brought me and introduced me to my, my two great-grandkids who sit here now on my lap and I hold them. But what I really wanted was the DVD box set of 24. Have you ever seen that show? Now that's what I'm talking about. No, it is not what she's talking about. It is not what she's even thinking about. Nor is anybody else. Never occurs to them. This relationship right here is the gift. It never occurs to them, never occurs to her, that she, her joy might perhaps be deepened if they'd also brought along the DVD set. Now, that might be just a fine gift. She might even have wanted it. It might be on her list. And if she received it, she can sit down later and watch it with the grandkids on each leg, if that's appropriate for their age group. I don't know. But <laughs> she can enjoy that gift. It's fine. It's not wrong. But it's not her goal. It's not what she's really seeking. The relationship that's been renewed or perhaps even created with the young ones that's what's sustaining her heart. That's what she really longed for and now found. She never dreamed to hope for it. But it happened. And it's filling her up. All of them. And that's just people in a family. That's fallen human beings loving other fallen human beings. 
how much more so if the one who shows up at the doorstep of your heart is the Son. The Son of God. Jesus Himself come to give you Himself in relationship. Life. Indeed, He gives us many good things. And one day He will give us all things. So when He gives you things, enjoy them gladly. He gives good gifts to His children. But, if today or next week or next month, He rings a doorbell and shows up at your heart empty-handed, and something inside of you says, or maybe something verbally says, where's my gift? Why didn't you bring me what I really wanted? Why didn't you bring me a fixed marriage? Why didn't you bring me financial bounty or physical healing or health? If you detect that in you, note that because you've missed something. You've missed that He Himself is the primary gift. He is what your heart needs. And He primarily, initially, supremely means to give Himself to you. Maybe He's left the other gifts at home so as to not confuse you. He does that sometimes. Do you believe this? Do you see Him as wonderful? As the source of joy? He Himself, not just what He gives you. He Himself. Do you go looking to Him for life? Do you trust Him? Do you ask Him to give you more of Himself? To open your eyes and show you Him? Or do you primarily come to Him looking for something else, somewhere else? You must believe in Him, because in Him alone the dead find life. He wants to build that kind of belief in you. That's what's going to move us on to our second point here. The connection between God's glory and this belief in people. The first point is the main focus of the passage, I think. It's centered on Jesus' I am statement and the obvious healing sign. In Jesus himself, the spiritually dead live. Don't miss that. we move on to something else here that is also helpful, I believe. You might call it the story behind the story. But it is a story that we're supposed to read. We're supposed to notice this as well. It's hinted at throughout the chapter and throughout the whole book, in fact. Here's the second point. God's passion for His glory and for His children drives Him to make the first point known. In other words, to make it known that in, he, in Him alone the dead live. God's passion for His glory and for His children is the driving force. So it's behind him acting. He is passionate for those two things. Look at verse 4, the setup statement for the chapter. What's the purpose of this illness? We talked about this already. The end result of death? No. It's for the glory of God. Not to make God glorious. Not to make God glorious. He already is. God is glorious. He's perfect in nature complete in righteousness, 
all that is good, wonderful, and beautiful, truly awesome in nature, still more awesome than we know. He is glorious. It's not to make Him glorious, it's to reveal it. It's to make it known, because it's so often clouded and obscured and distorted. We fallen creatures in this fallen world exchange the glory of God for the worship of all things created, chief among them ourselves. So you have this vast truth, the glorious nature of God, towering and majestic, like a vast mountain range, like the Wasatch Front perhaps. Like the Wasatch Front in January. Grand, but nearly totally obscured by hazy, brown, smoggy inversion. If you were here in the middle of January, you could have stood out on I-15, I and the Wasatch Front would be almost invisible. You almost couldn't see it. It's still there. It's not any less than it ever has been. It's just clouded over, obscured, hidden. And verse 4 is saying that this illness is the storm that comes along to blow away the smog and reveal again the towering majesty of God so that those who have eyes to see can see it. God is passionate for that to happen. He is bent on displaying Himself. It's why He created anything in the first place. It's why He redeems to the praise of His glorious grace, the refrain of Ephesians 1. Again and again we see that there. God is consumed by a passion to display His glory, and He must be. Of everything that is, God is certainly one who keeps the first commandment. God has no other God before Himself. God is no idolater. He must be supremely concerned with lifting up Himself, holding Himself up as high and lofty. And so God reigns over all the earth on the grand scale and on the local personal scale to make Himself known. And that very often requires storms. I say this carefully here because I know that right now in our congregation, there are many who are in the midst of storms. I realize that. Storms related to, to job and finance and family strife and disease. I know that. We all walk through the valley of the shadow of death, every single one of us. It's right now, though, some of us are more acutely aware of that than others. So I say this carefully, but I do need to say it. Chapter 9, Jesus tells us that the man was born blind so that the works of God could be displayed in his life. Chapter 11, here, Jesus tells us that Lazarus is deathly ill so that the glory of God can be seen through his life. There's purpose here. God is about something. So look at the storms. To look at the storms and the pains and even the terrors of our lives and look at them as an arena in which God is at work to do something, to reveal Himself to us. And right there at that point, I begin to turn a little bit of a corner. I'll say that again. 
He's at work to reveal himself to us. I'm turning the corner there because right up to that point, some are wondering in their hearts and their minds, they're kind of raising an objection. Steve, this God you're describing sure sounds rather egotistical. Look how great I am. Look how great I am. God's about making himself look good at my expense. He puts me and my loved ones through the ringer so that he can look great. That's not the kind of God I know or not the kind of God that I want to know. Well, hold on a second. God's passion for his glory and his passion for his children is what's driving him to act. God wants to reveal himself to show how awesome he is, how awesome and unique Jesus is, in this case by raising a four-day-old dead man. Because he's passionate for his glory to be seen by you. That makes all the difference. His display of his glory is also the most loving thing that he can do for you. Let me show you where I find that. Go back to verse 4 again. The illness leads to glory. Saw that there. The greater glorification of the Son. By whom? Well, by the people who see the miracle at the end. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, chief among them. Lazarus experiences this miracle in a unique way. But follow this on into verses 5 and 6. Now, Jesus loved this family. So, remember the connection there. Therefore, he does something. He delays. He's omniscient. He knows stuff. He realizes omnisciently when Lazarus dies. He could have realized omnisciently when Lazarus was going to get sick, and he could have arranged it so that he was there to stop this in the first place, but he didn't. He could have healed him from a distance. He has the power to do that. Remember chapter 4 where he healed the feverish boy from a distance? He didn't even go to the boy's town. He just said, go, your son's well. Could have done that, but he didn't do that either. He could have come earlier to be more of a, a consoling help. Maybe to heal him after being dead two days. Less sorrow, half as much sorrow perhaps. But he didn't do that either. He waited until the extreme end. Four days. Why? What else is driving the activity of the Son here? His love for his children. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he waited. Or verse 15. I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sake, disciples. He's happy that he wasn't there. So you've got two, two things here. We've got the, the glory of God being shown here in this, and we have the love and the gladness for, the, for Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the disciples. There's two different strands here of things that are driving his activity. Desire to show his glory, his love for these, for these people. Can you put those two things together? The key is in verse 15. That you may believe. And in his prayer, just before the healing in verse 42, that they may believe. Jesus wants to build belief. What does belief lead to? Life. Belief leads to life. Verse 25 and 26. Those who believe, live. So follow this through. He loves them. 
So he waits so he can show himself in stunning glory to be the one who gives life so that they will believe, so that they will find life. Now there's a lot of steps in there. So don't get lost. Let me try to say that again. I'm going to go backwards this time to try to show it to you again. You need life. You need this kind of genuine, real life, this relationship with Christ. You need that. Well, how do you get that? By belief. By trusting yourself to him. How does that happen? By seeing Jesus as the one who gives life. And you see that and you say, whoa, I need that. I believe. And then you find life. Well, how do you see Jesus as this one who gives life? God reveals him to you. God displays him to you. Shows off his glory right in front of you. He blows away all that clouds your vision of him so that you can see. You regard him as glorious and then you believe and then you find life. The most loving thing he can do for you is display himself as glorious. You follow that. So there's a couple different ways there. He is majestic. We need to see that he's majestic so that we can believe in him, be drawn to him, and find life. So we're talking about two sides of the same coin. God's passion to display his glory and God's love for us. They're the same thing. They're on the same coin. So we need to view the trials and the storms in life as God displaying His glory to us out of love for us. Not at our expense, but for our good. It builds belief in us. It grows belief. The thing that we most need that is of greater worth than gold, says Peter. Why? Because it fastens you to Jesus where life is. And anything that God does to build your faith and fasten you more closely to Jesus is great for you. Seeing this helps explain a lot about the book of John. Seeing this relationship between God being displayed, Jesus being displayed, and us believing and finding life explains a lot about John. Have you noticed so far that the book of John is really, really light on ethical, moral, and behavioral teaching. Have you noticed that yet? We're like 11 chapters into this. There's no Sermon on the Mount here, for instance. There's nothing that tells you be, be uh, moral, be kind, don't commit adultery, give to the poor. That stuff's not here. John's really, really light on that. Why is that? Well, it's on purpose. He's told us, you'll recall, verse 20, Uh, Chapter 20, verse 31, why he wrote. He wrote, so that you may believe, here's the same, believe that Jesus is the Christ, Son of God, and that believing you may find life in him. Same things. He wants you to believe who Jesus is, entrust yourself to him so that you'll find life. So what does he do? I've said this like 50 times. Again and again, in passage after passage after passage after passage after passage after passage, every week he holds up Jesus and displays his glory from a new angle, a little bit differently. Look at him like this. Isn't he awesome? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he beautiful? Marvelous, isn't he? Attractive, huh? Intriguing, eh? Again and again and again and again and again trying to woo you with his wonder, to draw you to him so that you will believe and find life. 
That's John's agenda. Not what should you do, but who is he? This book is all about Jesus. All about lifting him up in front of us and displaying him for us to draw us to win our affections, to bind us fast to Him so that we'll find life. That's John's agenda. That's God's agenda in the world. To show off Jesus and draw people to Him. Brothers and sisters and friends, God is working in the circumstances of your life, be they easy, mildly difficult, or crushing. God is working in the circumstances of your life to scour out your heart. To blow away the smog. To strip away those things that we all in our fallenness tend to lean on and hope in and trust in. And to replace them with a stunning view of a glorious God who is The only God who is. So what should you do about that? Here's the only thing that I'm going to tell you to do. Develop a heart disposition like Moses who said, show me your glory. God, please show me your glory. So Moses said to God, Moses was onto something. If I can see him, I need vision of him, supreme and high. If I can see him reigning over all things, he'll grab my heart, bind me to him, and I'll walk with him and find life. Moses got that. Develop that kind of heart disposition. Repent of leaning on other things and ask God, show me your glory, and then go to the scriptures. Go to prayer, listen to worship music, walk through nature, fellowship with other Christians, hunting. Hunting for Him. Looking for Him. Asking and praying and praying and praying, God, where are you? Show me your glory. He will provide. Right away, immediately, in the way you want? Maybe not. But He will show up. He's passionate to display His glory. And He's passionate for you. Behold Him, believe, and find life. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.